Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Magandang araw po. If you have been following Puma Podcast, quick note, we will not be posting any new episodes this week. We too will be observing All Souls Day. We will be back with all new episodes next week. What we have done for this week is to recast and repost some of our favorite episodes to maybe accompany you on your long drive to wherever it is you will be visiting loved ones or simply taking a break. And maybe you could share the tip with your friends and family. Boring ang traffic at mahaba ang undas. Why not listen to some podcasts made especially para sa mga kabayan? If this, however, is the first time you're trying us out, hello po, kami po ang Puma Podcast. Here is one in a set of sampler podcasts we are republishing for the All Souls Day traffic. Call it our undas playlist, featuring among others conversations with Randy David, Lord De Vera, Ambet Ocampo, Ted De, Manny V. Pangilinan, JC Punong Bayan, The Story of Papi Melody, and the hosts and podcasters of Puma Podcast. Today, our Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency reports that over 5,500 people have died in the government's drug The Philippine drug war. government has acknowledged more than 6,000 people have been killed in President Rodrigo Duterte's anti-drug operations since 2016. But human rights groups estimate the death toll is more than four times the that amount. The Drug Archive, a database created by Ateneo de Manila University, De La Salle University, and University of the Philippines, shows that more than 7,000 alleged drug suspects have been killed... The problem is this, Amnesty International is politicizing the so-called extrajudicial killings We in this protect country. you from the scourge of drugs. Papatay ako ng tao pag ginalaw ninyo yung kabataan. The mother of a three-year-old child who died in a police drug bust in Rodriguez Rizal on Sunday is crying for justice. Ako po si Robbie Alampay, Puma Podcast, and this is a special episode of our usual headlines. If you are familiar with our weekly news roundups, you will know that from time to time we go a little bit longer with some segments take a little bit more time to go a little bit deeper on some stories. Well, in this episode, we'll devote one entire episode to really go into something that was in the news recently, but that we obviously think deserves a lot more discussion and attention. Kung magustuhan nyo, we'll do more of these deeper follow-throughs from time to time. You may have seen it on the news site of The Atlantic. 
Sheila Coronel, the founder of the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism and now academic dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University, wrote about the Philippine War on Drugs. To be more precise, she wrote about a project that she and two reporters conducted under the Columbia J School's Stabil Center for Investigative Journalism. So this was really a collaborative effort between our team here at the Stabil Center and the security force monitor of the Columbia Law School's Human Rights Institute. Their expertise lies in combining knowledge about how police and security forces operate and trying to match them with human rights violations. We also worked with Patrick Ball, the Human Rights Data Analysis Group in San Francisco. Patrick is a human rights statistician. As that title implies, he uses the power of statistics to surface human rights violations. Sheila, together with journalist Mariel Padilla and David Mora, set out to answer what are the real numbers behind President Duterte's controversial war on drugs. So before anything else, let's start with government's quote-unquote real numbers. These are from the official website of Real Numbers PH. The administration, particularly the Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency, or PIDEA, compiles data from the police, the NBI, LGUs, and other agencies. And they say, from July 1, 2016 to March 31, 2019, these are the numbers they have so far. Anti-drug operations, 127,000. Drug personalities arrested, more than 182,000. Drug personalities killed, 5,375. The Stabil team took note of all that, but also combed through reports from human rights advocates, religious groups, and international organizations, and media. There were, there are, many counts. Not everything lines up. There must be a way to make the different numbers not necessarily match, but at least make more sense. In her piece for The Atlantic, Sheila notes that the police say they have killed some 5,500 drug suspects in stings and other legitimate police operations in the past three years. Meanwhile, unknown gunmen reportedly killed more than 3,000 other drug suspects or 10% of the nearly 30,000 homicides carried out in the Philippines since Duterte's drug war began. The Stabil Center says the figures are a gross underestimation. And they arrived at this conclusion by looking at three cities, Caloocan, Manila, and Quezon City. For one, Sheila says that far greater than 10%, in fact, more like 50% of all homicides recorded by the police in these cities were tied to illicit narcotics. At the same time, their team found hundreds of homicides that were documented by private and non-government groups, but that were not on the police record at all. By their count, even just in Manila, Caloocan, and Quezon City, at least 2,320 individuals were definitely killed in the drug war in the first 18 months of the Duterte administration alone. If numbers could be so off in these three major cities, what might that suggest? for the real numbers nationwide, they asked. 
I think we were working on several hypotheses, and one is that the official numbers are wrong, and that one for us is the easiest to do because we could compare the police data set with all the other data sets that we had. Also, we know that the casualty count is a very political issue, and so we wanted to have a sense of really when President Duterte says, I will make you safe, what is the cost of that safety? So what price are Filipinos willing to pay? to fight drugs and crime. The price Filipinos are willing to pay for a sense of safety. It's important to note, as Sheila does in her piece, that PNP data show that the overall crime rate in the Philippines has in fact come down over the past three years, although the numbers for homicide have gone up. And while surveys say that around 80% of Filipinos would prefer for drug suspects to be arrested unharmed, and an overwhelming majority are afraid of becoming collateral damage in anti-drug campaigns, approval ratings for President Duterte hover at 80% and have consistently remained high. All that said, we come back to Sheila's question. Do Filipinos know, or do they even want to know, the cost of the results attributed to President Duterte's notorious approach to fighting crime and securing neighborhoods? Sheila's team found hundreds of other homicides that were not on the police records. Sheila names one source that proved to be very useful in their study. Noel Abicendario, a former intelligence agent during the 80s. Sheila mentions him in an op-ed she wrote for Rappler after the Atlantic piece came out. Abicendario works as head of Barangay Public Safety in Holy Spirit in Quezon City. And apparently, he kept a personal list of every person killed during drug operations in their barangay. And I realized how much surveillance there is of poor communities. He keeps account of every drug user, every drug dealer that he knows about, or he thinks he knows about, because we don't know if it's actually the truth. He keeps account of everybody who was killed. There were a hundred people killed there, according to his count. Can you imagine a hundred people killed just within a two-kilometer radius of Congress? And the people who live nearby don't know about it, don't know the extent of the carnage. In that one community, in the Holy Spirit, literally only one man had a complete picture of what was happening. Yes. And... He knew because he kept track, because he likes to keep lists. He's an intelligent officer, and that's what he does. Why did he share it? Because he's proud of it. He said, you know, this is my job. I do it. And I said, you know, because only a minority of the people there were killed by the police. And I said, what about the others who killed them? And he said, he basically said, who else do you think has the capacity to kill these people? And, you know, and wink, wink. I dropped by his office, I went straight there, and I talked to him and I asked him about the anti-drug campaign, and he just started chatting. I don't think it's something that he's ashamed of, because this is what they do, this is how they measure success. Yeah, but on the other side of it, why don't you encounter other people like him in other barangays? I think it's because he's more fastidious in his list keeping. The other barangays take this less seriously. But I don't know how many journalists have approached other barangays and actually ask them. That barangay just started to emerge as you were collating yes. the data? People thought the killings were happening in Payatas, which is across 
Commonwealth Avenue from Holy Spirit. But when we mapped the data with the health of security force monitor, and we saw that there was this cluster of killings and they were Holy Spirit. And it was really surprising to me when I went there because we use just police records to map those killings. But when I went to Holy Spirit and went street by street, we found so many more killings that were not on the police record. And when I talked to the Barangay Public Safety Office, they had more killings than the police had. I'm curious as to your experience. All of you were here on the ground in the Philippines? No, only me. Marielle and David were working on the data. As I can recall right now, one of the biggest challenges was, you know, data comes in different forms, in different shapes, and in different types of files. So creating a spreadsheet, basically 10 months of our lives were just basically in front of a computer. That is David Mora. So we took in all of the sources that we were getting and we looked at each victim victim by victim, and we were looking at name, location of death, time of death, type of death, and we were just trying to make sure that we had no duplicates in our comprehensive list, so it took hours and hours of cleaning. And basically, we just had to go one by one and check all of these different variables. And that's Mariel Padilla. And even so, for people like myself and Maria, who didn't speak Tagalog, because some of the records were in Tagalog, but still we were like, I wouldn't say fluent right now, but, <laughs> but I know my words in Tagalog after reading so many records. Give me some words that did jump out at you that kept coming up that you actually well, did learn I, I the, the context right for. Now, this didn't come up with the records. This came up after so many times that we went to ask for comment to the police office in Manila. We were being makulit, malukit, makulit, makulit. You know, asking once and again, we were just pestering them with questions. But just going back to a more serious tone here, in the police reports, and this is something that other news organizations have pointed out before, when we're talking about police operations, of course, in the context of the drug war, you know, many of the narratives are just the same. A group of police officers, they came, you know, in a drug sting, in a drug operation, and they were looking for shabu. That's one of the words that I learned. And the person refused. The person who they were targeting refused to surrender and a shooting happened. And usually the person always ends up dying while you know, even one officer or there were like really few cases where officers were injured. That's called. And that's called. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> okay, now Sheila, I'm, I'm just curious because you were the one here on the ground. How hard was it to even get the cooperation of the police? I mean, you're going to church organizations, civil society organizations, that's one thing. But eventually getting official data, not just from the PNP national office, but even from local stations. Well, to be clear, a lot of the data in the beginning up to about the end of 2017 was actually available to journalists. A lot of the spot reports and many of the spot reports and the e-blotters that we got were actually from journalists who did precisely that. Because by tradition, the police blotters and the spot reports were open to the public. But by the time they started doing their count, the police had switched to releasing only aggregate information. Sheila's team had to be makulit and to make freedom of information requests through the NCR police office. We just kept questioning their numbers, why they were different. Finally, they got tired of us and released to us their own data of about a thousand killings that they considered to be drug-related. 
Now, Mariel and David, what sorts of data are you able to extract? We created a spreadsheet and all of the columns. We based our coding scheme basically on Ateneo's current database, but we have the victim's name, their nicknames, the street address that they lived in, the barangay, their city, how old they were, their gender, if they were married or single. We looked at their job. We looked at whether there were previous allegations made against them, how they died. We tried at the beginning to track how many uh, gunshot wounds were found in their body, like the location of those wounds. We tracked whether the victim was already on a drug watch list or if they'd previously been accused of drug-related crimes or previously been arrested. We looked at whether they were an elected official. And we looked at the incident data too. So we tried to see how many people were shot in a singular incident, who were the shooters, how many there were, whether they were police or unknown. And then we looked at incident street address. We have latitude and longitude for each of these killings. Yeah, so that we could map it. And then we tried to get as much police information as we could. So if the police report mentioned units involved or police officers, we documented that as well. What salient points and salient patterns emerged both on the side of the victims on the one hand and, for that matter, patterns on the side of the police? What we found was that the killings were not uniformly all over the place. They were concentrated in certain police stations, certainly the poorest areas in these three cities. For example, Tondo in Manila, Police Station 6, which is the area around Batas and Pambansa in Quezon City, and Bagong Silang in Calok. So we found that there were only a few police commanders that were responsible for most of the killings. do not know where uh, the president uh, get the statistics because he has, uh, of course, sabi nga natin, uh, unlimited yung sources of information ng ating Pangulo. That is National Police Chief Director General Oscar Albayalde halfway into his term. President Duterte claimed 7 to 8 million Filipinos have been reduced to slaves by Shabu. But even the chief of the National Police has admitted that even he does not know where the president gets his numbers. Not even the stabile study purports to know. There is enough data to show that at least in the three major cities they sampled and in Barangay Holy Spirit for which one official kept his own list, the documented killings they found already outstripped the narratives offered up by government. But can those findings be extrapolated, scaled up to surmise as to what the picture might be for the rest of the country? Sheila and team reached out to Patrick Ball, a statistician with the Human Rights Data Analysis Group in San Francisco. Ball used machine learning to analyze the list the journalist obtained, and then he applied a technique called multiple systems estimation to count undocumented conflict-related deaths. That is, he compared information from multiple data sets and inferred what was not recorded. Now, quickly, I know Patrick Ball is not there, but is there anybody there who can explain this multiple systems estimation? What sorcery is this? Imagine there's a dark room, and the only way you can figure out how big the room is is with a set of balls. So you throw one ball, and you hear a, a click every time the ball hits a wall. If you throw it, and then you hear a ball instantly, you can tell that the room is very small. But if you throw it and you hear the click 
a few seconds later or even one minute later, you can tell that that room is bigger, right? So basically with this, we have some measure to know how large this room could be, the room of course being the total amount of killings in the drug war in these three cities for that period of time. I see. And the click, basically, or the echo, emanates from when data sets actually line up against each other, correct? Yes. And therefore, where they don't line up, it means there's a wall missing there or there's a wall farther out than we were anticipating. Yes. The Stabil team has uploaded their data, the spreadsheets, the statistical methods applied by Patrick Ball for scrutiny and or use by other researchers. We will post the links in Puma Podcast Facebook page and in the episode notes. I asked Sheila, apart from testing and validating their findings, what else use might people have for the data they've shared? Well, we've already gotten queries from academics and journalists about the data, which they intend to use in their own work. There are groups that have been collecting data on violence all around the world, and they've been looking at the Philippines very intensely. Most of these groups just base their estimates on news reports. And as we found, only 40% of the killings are recorded in the news, and that's in Metro Manila. Can you imagine what it is in other places? So our data fills a gap and it, it allows people to make estimates or whatever. But it also, I think, raises questions about police transparency, police accountability, the very cavalier way in which the police has been throwing out numbers and the need to have an accurate count. I'm hoping that our data will help also bring about accountability. In terms of what you've done and the data that's out there and the data that's not there, how should the people actually see this or think of this? What we've shown is that you cannot trust the police data, that there are many more killings out there that have not been documented, that our society does not have a capacity to document all of these killings, and that some more effort should be done to, well, first not Accountability may be something far off, but at least to have a historical record of this moment. And this is what we've attempted to do, is we have 2,300 people who died, and we know who they are, where they were killed, and possibly why they were killed. And we, we want to preserve that information before it's lost. Marielle and David, I'm just curious what your personal reflection is on this work. At what point does it become just numbers to you and that at one point do you pull back and remind yourself of what we're really looking at here? The product came out as just numbers, but at least for me, it was hard to just make them into numbers because the data that I was looking at was in more narrative form. As I was reading news reports and the police documents, it was very clear to me that they were people because they had names and jobs and spouses. So as I was inputting the data, they turned into numbers, but for me, they never were numbers. And it was very difficult for me not to keep comparing what I was looking at and the questions that we were posing and the hypothesis we were working on, not to compare them with what's happening in, in Mexico, a place that I used to live before moving to New York City and Colombia as well, which is where I come from, and not try to draw comparisons and 
see what's happening in the Philippines through the lenses of the drug war, both in Colombia and in Mexico. I could say that there are some things that I was uh, impressed that there are available in the Philippines. I was kind of shocked of this uh, level of transparency from the Philippines police office. Uh, I was appalled for that because in, in Mexico that would require a lot of work. What was your impression of the police narratives beyond the data? It seemed to be pretty templative. I mean, they had narratives for each of the killings, but most of the narratives kind of read the same. There were a lot of the same words used, a lot of the same situations, so it was hard for us to know what was actually happening. I would say there wasn't that much humanity left in the police reports. Now, of course, literally more than half of this other story is the underreporting. When you say underreporting, what does that mean? A lot of them are miscategorized. Even if they are on the police record, they are miscategorized as not drug-related or they're said to be deaths under investigation, which means the police is not counting them as drug-related deaths. Can you imagine that in Police Station 6, which is the famous police station of the Davao Boys, they say there were like five drug-related homicides. That is just a completely false number, something like five. I'm not sure what the exact number is. It's a ridiculous little number because in Holy Spirit alone, of the 100 or so killings, about 80% are vigilante killings that are drug-related. What we've seen is that it's at the discretion of the station commander or whoever is doing the classification at the station level. So, for, for example, we saw that in Manila, they are more fastidious, shall we say, about classifying drug-related killings. In Quezon City, they're very careless. I just want to say that this is hard work, getting an account of the killings. And my fear is there's so much more out there that we don't know about how the drug war is being fought, especially in areas outside Metro Manila, where there are few reporters, few human rights groups. There is a big, big gap in our knowledge and that there should really be more effort, I don't know, by home, by universities, by human rights groups, by communities to come to terms with these killings because they will haunt us many years from now. And that's it for this special episode of Puma Podcast. This episode was produced by Kat Ventura, Trisha Aquino, Nina Toralba, Mikel Bolante, and myself, Robbie Alampay. Just to remind, the material that Sheila Coronel and her team have uploaded, we will be sharing the links for those on our Facebook page and in the episode notes. For more of Sheila Coronel and her team's work covering the drug war, read The Uncounted Dead of Duterte's Drug War on theatlantic.com. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. And do give us some good reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Meantime, we suggest you click subscribe on your player and let us autoplay and accompany you on your trip. When you get back, we hope you continue to accompany us on ours. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.